0: I have much more space to do things. I feel like it's much more scary to, to take risk when you have nothing.
1: Hi, I'm Andrew Goldstein, and this is the Art Angle, a podcast from ArtNet News, where the art world meets the real world, bringing each week's biggest story down to earth. Okay, as we step onto the promontory of 2020 and look out at the year to come. It's clear that there are several major shifts underfoot in the art world. After a period of focus on correcting errors in the art historical canon, people are once again starting to energetically seek out fresh talent. Young artists, in other words, who are able to inject new ideas and innovative approaches into the mix. And if you ask anyone in the know who you should be looking at, one of the names you're sure to hear is Nicholas Party, a genial 39-year-old Swiss artist Party has won widespread attention not because of any high-tech artistry, but rather for the opposite. He specializes in portraits, landscapes, and still lifes that he executes in vividly colored pastels, a painting technique developed during the Renaissance that employs sticks of pure powdered pigment. The result is a pictorial world so overabundantly rich that you can all but taste it, and party pushes this effect into overdrive, not only painting his canvases, but also covering the walls of his galleries in gorgeous color, often adding surrealistic elements like floating jellyfish or flapping cartoon birds. The artist currently has a ravishing show on view at New York's Flag Art Foundation, where he is displaying his own work alongside that of historical artists he admires like Marsden Hartley, Mary Cassatt, and Louis Fratino. Party is also about to have a major show in Los Angeles this February when he has his debut at Hauser & Wirth, the Marquis Swiss gallery that signed him to its roster last June as one of its youngest artists ever. So where does Party's beguiling art come from and what does it mean to be a rising art star in 2020? Here to discuss, I'm happy to welcome the artist onto the show. Thank you for being on The Art Angle, Nicholas. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. So you grew up in Lausanne, Switzerland. Which is a beautiful city overlooking the alps how did you first become drawn to making art you know every kid's first way of communicating is
0: through like images because it's easier than words and is very early on that you do like marks on paper on walls when you're like six seven years old you i guess the play time and the creative time that you're allowed to to have when you're a your children is very large and then i think when you grow up as an artist, you just want to keep that time the same. So it was kind of a process, but it was always like, oh, like I still like doing
1: it and still to this day, I guess. (laughs) You mentioned drawing on walls, which is something that you do still to this day, because for a long time you were a street artist. What is it like to be a street artist in the nineties in Switzerland?
0: Yeah, I mean, that was from 12 to 20, 21 years old. Hmm. I was doing quite a lot of it. And it was obviously like the best thing to do as a as a teenager because you obviously have a lot of things that's combined by this activities. You have the friends group that you're very tied in and you do like those very intense activities of going out at night together, getting chased by the police, like hmm. hiding things and having some outfit to, you know, be discreet, like breaking in in some places. So obviously all this stuff makes you very strong bond between, you know, you, your group of friends, which is when you're a teenager, like being in a rock band or doing skateboards or whatever like, <laughs> you know, that makes this particular moment extremely exciting. And the 90s for Graffiti was, was, I guess, the second wave or like third wave in Europe. So it was like already pretty established, but obviously in the early 90s, there was no internet and there was no iPhone, but it is kind of so funny to think about how things changed because now... You know, you can see everything that's right. happening. Back in the day, like, if you in a in a small town, you, we had only one magazine that was printed. <laughs> and we basically found it. And uh, there was, like, one of those things. It was a revolution. It was like, oh, my God, this is happening. And it was just, like, printed in black and white in this little magazine. It's called Tough Times. <laughs> and then,
1: so I started in 92, I think. I did my first kind of train or something, yeah. You know, one one thing that I find really interesting about street art is that it really pushes artists to develop a signature style. What was your visual catchphrase as an artist? I was, you know,
0: I also like, graffiti was, it's a strange enough, very conservative kind of environment. Mm-hmm. When I, I, remember when I was doing, like doing letters without a perspective was not seen as real graffiti. Like that was more skilled in terms of figuration because I was drawing a lot and uh, not only letters, like a lot of people will only do letters and they didn't really do characters, mm-hmm. like those goofy kind of heads and stuff. So I was doing quite a lot of that. What kind of heads
1: were you doing? What kind of
0: characters? in the beginning it's a lot of caricatures kind of like you know monster type thing you know you're 13 14 but i was also into like all the characters of disney and that they were like really amazingly done so there was a bit of that and like more like creepy like teenager type thing you know like oh it's kind of scary or whatever (laughs) so that's like kind of quickly did like those kind of also like more realistic animals and stuff yeah it was very like fun and creative and you feel like very like alive, the sense of belonging that can be very difficult for at that point in y- in life, and you're like, well, what am what I'm supposed to do, and what I'm doing here. That was definitely like, oh, that's what I'm supposed to do.
1: <laughs> I've got to ask, what was your tag?
0: I had like seam s e a m. That was the train. And I got caught so I can say it, <laughs> it was a long time ago. And uh, I was like one that was real. There was like more streets kind of in the city, like R-E-A-L. Mm-hmm. And um, I mean, you can change a few times and... Uh, but it's funny, yeah, you, you always keep the same one for a long time, which is obviously totally stupid because when you get caught, that's how the tell you, oh, but you kept the same name for, like, those 50 trains that you did. Well, thank you very much. The, the police will be waiting for you <laughs> yeah, after, exactly. after this episode. <laughs> no, it took me uh, 10 years to pay back. It was, like, really crazy.
1: Wow. So how did you transition from the cool, fun world of street art to the stuffy, old-fashioned world <laughs> of fine art, quote-unquote? Yeah, I mean, when I was doing graffiti, I was
0: still doing a lot of, actually, very fairly traditional Landscape painting—it's a quite picturesque kind of environment—and I was really into that too. It got complicated with the police, and you spend like a at the police station or in jail. It's get—I like, mean, it's fun, but until an end, and then it's not very fun. And it took me like years to believe that I will have the same thrill, the same kind of joy of like you know again belonging to a, a group of people making art together. Mm-hmm. Because it was—I mean, it was gr- great from the start. The art school—it was really fun. Obviously, an art school is, is such an amazing environment to be in, but. Uh, you know, I was always missing like the go-out nights and like getting chates and the adrenaline. I didn't have the adrenaline in the art school, obviously. <laughs> but you know, like I always say that that the, when I do those murals now, that are very like physical and very time-constrained and it, it's very challenging in terms of uh, improvisation and stuff. I think I'm really chasing that um, <laughs> that kind of performance. Graffiti is mainly a performance. You know, it's you you do it. It's, that's why people say, so oh, it looks very stupid and ugly. It's like, yeah, because graffiti, they don't really care. The main thing was always like the most you know difficult train to do and the train yards, like the one that is very difficult to get access to. And then whatever you do on it, the main thing was you have to do it.
1: Interesting. So how did you get from working with spray paint to this really genteel medium of pastels, which very few other artists have really made their signature technique at least since you know the 1900s or the 1800s
0: yeah so that that's like i mean that was fairly recent basically i was doing i was working with oil painting and i was just very slow like dragging in a way my technique and my struggle with it and a painting could take a year and a half like i was drawing and stuff but and when basically i saw a, a little pastel portrait from Picasso in a show in, in Basel and uh, it was this post Cubist period when he started to do this very like classic series of work influenced by the Greek sculptures and I think he used pastel a bit because it was allowing him to render the the shading very smoothly and when I saw it and I was like, oh this is exactly what I'm trying to do the pastel would be a great technique to do those shading for hmm. portraits. So what I did, I bought the postcards at the museum and I went to the art store the next day and I bought a little box of pastel and the paper. And I, tra- and I copied the portraits for that summer, kind of more or less, you know, was like doing versions of it. Hmm. And uh, I mean, straight away, I was like, oh, this is this is it. I was very like clumsy with it, but I was like, oh, this is amazing. And it goes very fast. So that's everybody that does pastel, that, that one of the things they will always talk about is like very immediate and very like a fast technique.
1: And now some artists of that, era when you were coming up in art school, may have decided to take this in an abstract direction. Abstraction was the cool mode at the time. But you decided to really go into landscapes, still lifes, and portraits, which are kind of really traditional, bourgeois, domestic, recognizable, Mm -hmm. historical art forms. What made you really drawn to this
0: approach? I was at the art school in the early two thousand and I basically discovered like what was contemporary art, kind of what was postmodernism and all that that stuff. And the art school the I was always taught like oh you need to have like a context or even like a concept mm-hmm. for when you create something. Like I was trying very hard and really thinking about elaborated like themes and like okay, so I'm doing this because it means that and it's related to this text. I think what was happening I was not really feeling connected with this, basically, or you need to f- have a subject, or you need to have an idea before you do your project. You need to tell me what it is about. So I think at some point I got, I was starting more and more frustrated by, I guess, my art teachers, and I was like, I just don't get it. And so I think I started to maybe have the similar reaction that the impressionists is like, oh, <laughs> we don't want to do history paintings anymore. We're gonna do still lifes, landscapes and the most minor sort of painting uh, genres. And I think I was like, oh, I'm going to exactly do it. I'm going to do still lifes, landscapes, portraits. Uh, it's a genre that is like, it's not new at all, but it's also like probably the most used genres still, especially in like hobby paintings. And so instantly I felt very connective. And then I just started finding something interesting for myself and hopefully for people around me that I was, oh, that's an interesting
1: picture with trees. <laughs> well. These are traditional tropes that you're using, but the way that you approach them is very uncanny. And I think that's something that people really respond to, especially with your portraits. They seem to be a little bit of a cross between ancient Etruscan art with their really huge, mysterious almond eyes, and also maybe Edward Gorey. Are these real people that you're painting? Are they archetypes?
0: (laughs) Yeah, they're like... I call them portraits. You know, like traditionally, like if I do a portrait of you, I will name the painting "You Name." <laughs> so, like you basically paint someone. If you, if you remove the someone, you just paint basically just the layer that you see. When you see a face, it's basically the first like few millimeters of something, but then there's all what is inside. Huh. Quite often the idea is like, I need to get what is inside you. Mm-hmm. You know, It's like a therapy thing. It's like basically I take a photo and I just outline exactly mm-hmm. your shape. I will not look like you. It will just be like a very cold for presentation. And you, if I want to do a real, real portrait. So I think what I was interesting is doing the opposite. In the art school, I was doing a lot of 3D animations and I, I was really loving working with that medium. And so 3D is exactly that. It's really the illusion. It's like perspective. It's the illusion hmm. of the volume and the surface of things, but obviously inside the 3D, it's like Jeff Goons, there's nothing in it. It's like air balloon. And social media came, and I learned a lot of Photoshop when I was at school. So I think there was this idea of like really working on the surface of things to make them very appealing, like more and more uh, we're living in the time of the filter. You know, Instagram, you always have a filter now, like to make you like funny or more pretty or more young or older or whatever, monster. Mm -hmm. And I think the portrait has those, those
1: filters in a way. That's very interesting that you're working this traditional mode again, But it has its roots in street art and it's informed by this kind of computer graphic sensibility where you have these volumetric forms that you're manipulating on a screen. One thing that is interesting is that your work is incredibly responsive to Instagram. Because you do the paintings and then you have them in these settings where you you have these architectural interventions, you make these curved archways in the galleries and you paint the walls in these incredibly vivid colors and, and everything just pops out. How do you think about your work in in regard to something like Instagram? Yeah, because I think, like, you know,
0: painters back in the day, you use a mirror to sing from another angle. And I think the camera is even better than a mirror. Like if you, when you paint, you quite often you take pictures of the painting. And when you look from your camera, you you see a a very totally different image. First of all, because it's much smaller. So it's like seeing from very far. (laughs) When I do an install, I will take a lot of pictures while I'm doing it so I can sit when I'm going back home to like, to, okay, maybe that color is not right. I don't know if it's everybody's doing it, but I will say most of the artists, they're definitely looking at art and their own art through the lens of the phone. And so like UI is obviously getting used to it. And I think automatically when you create something, you're influenced by it. Hmm. When people say, oh, do you think about Instagram when you, you do your painting? It's not about thinking, it's what we do. It's what we are. Like it, it's not really like is the word post-internet arts. Like, everybody is a post-internet artist. If you decide to not be, that's still, you know, reaction to it, so it's still post-internet. Everything is, in a way, like,
1: influenced by the screen. You were born in 1980, I believe, which by (laughs) some accounting techniques makes you a millennial. And so you're you're speaking like a true millennial. And earlier last year, in, in the summer, you actually became the youngest artist to join Hauser & Wirth, which is this gigantic mega-gallery that straddles the world with 11 locations internationally. And the cohort of artists that you're among there is pretty rock-solid. You've got Amy Sherald, <laughs> who painted Michelle Obama's portrait. You've got Rashid Johnson, who just had his directorial debut with Native Sun last year. And then you've got Avery Singer, who is this incredibly hot phenomenon right now for her, her post-internet quote unquote kind of art. This is your mm-hmm. new crew. These are the people you're <laughs> you're bombing the streets of Switzerland with now. It's,
0: it's really great as I kept all the galleries that I work with. So I have like six different galleries and basically I do spend more or less time with all of them mm-hmm. uh, almost in an equal kind of way like Hauser, it's like the most recent ones. It's actually a very different structure. I will not call small galleries because like Xavier Hofken, they do have a fairly large staff. But I think like when you jump to those few mega galleries, it's more like working with a museum because it Hmm. is the structure of of the mega gallery is much larger and they have departments, communication department, marketing, finance, install, Director sells, and every time you do a show in an institution, like I was like comparing to the Iqraan Museum when I did my show there a few years ago, where because it's a state museum, you can't just say like arrive and say like oh I'm gonna put this ladder here and I'm gonna paint because the ladder has to be brought by the technical team and it has to be you know like hmm. has to be agreed by this. And I think in a, from what I feel now, like a big gallery is a bit similar. Like you say like oh I want to change that, it's like okay we well, we have our technical meeting on Wednesday with the the, the, the in a smaller structure you just call and they say yes or no right now. And it's like much more direct. So that's like one thing. It's again, much more like working with a museum in a way. And I think that's probably what almost they are. <laughs> and uh, because they really, mm-hmm. they're those mega structure. The space themselves look more like a museum somehow. Even the, as you say, like oh, you belong to this roster of artists, which for sure, but it's become so large. They have a lot of estates. They're from Philip Guston to me or like, Every singer, like, it's, it's a different thing. You know, like when I'm with, or like say like Karma in New York, you can relate to everybody Very like, very like, yeah. Mm-hmm. Like, like with, with Auser, there's like a lot of people, like a lot of people are obviously not alive <laughs> anymore. There's mm-hmm. like people live all over the world. So it's not like, oh, this is just a little gang that you can, and that makes the process of making a show quite different and very interesting. In and I'm very, very fortunate to have both structure because I think it, it helped me and the work very, very well. You have those two
1: angles. Another side effect, and this is always kind of a weird, sensitive topic to- talk to an artist about, (laughs) is that since you've joined Hauser & Wirth, the demand for your work has exploded. I think that your prices for your work has quadrupled. You broke the psychological barrier of the one million mark at auction (laughs) in Hong Kong. How do you compartmentalize that from this kind of noise? Yeah, first
0: of all, like I live in New York now, which I think it even couldn't really happen if I was not living here, because the, the art market and the money discussion is really here and maybe London, but for sure here mainly. When I was living in Glasgow, obviously the care was different, and in Brussels, like, but it just there's no really talk about money because there's no money. So. Right. <laughs> and so, like, I think as soon as I moved here, I think I got used to it because here either you have to e- embrace and get at ease with it, for everybody that is from you know abroad or whatever, or you just leave because it's you know like the city is. Mm-hmm basically a capitalist caricature you know it's wall street uh, yeah it's like it's, it's all about that in a way and it was from the start somehow it's a huge part of the city before it happens it was already here and and it happens it's became just a part of discussions then when the auction started there was like the first one was the one drop the kind of charity auction that was at phillips and that made a very a very high price mm-hmm. it was a very strategic thing that was happening by some certain galleries building up and I think if you get like comfortable with the strategy that is in place that you don't exactly totally make yourself and you just like okay, it's fine, you know, like obviously take a big part of this cake. And uh, I think some artists will be like, oh, they feel weird about it because is my philosophical kind of position is right with the full of cash that's coming in right now. The like, 90s thing, it's
1: like, <laughs> like Kurt Cobain being freaked out by Exactly, by yeah,
0: yeah. And I think that's where some artists get like really like, about it when you talk about it. You know, they feel like, I don't want to, like, say that I'm, like, something, like, to make much more money than everybody else around you. And it's, like, your family, like, you know, like, all these things, they're, like, it's, it, it is a very, like, strange thing, for sure. I mean, I'm definitely from more, like, middle-class, modest kind of backgrounds. So, like, it is, like, a different thing. But for me, anyway, like, what's happening now is that I'm lucky to have shows that I'm really excited about and I work very hard for the for the shows and the money that comes just helped me to do those shows in the best way possible. I have a great studio now that is like, as you know, rent in New York is insane because I'm selling those, those paintings for very high prices. I can get an amazing mm-hmm. studio and I can get a few people to help. And uh, so I can really have an extremely comfortable situation to create things. And I mean, I feel extremely lucky because I still have a lot of friends that obviously don't have that. And I had that for like 10 years when I didn't have much. And to be honest, it's much better now. <laughs> no doubt about it. And I feel more creative. I have much more space to do things. I feel like it's much more scary to, to take risk when you have nothing.
1: Right. Now you have more to lose, but at the same time you have more.
0: Yep yeah, yeah. I mean this like you know like if you need to sell like two paintings to kind of be even, like <laughs> it, it's like well that you know that's when you can experiment. Mm-hmm. I feel very fortunate, and I feel like I'm, I need to just enjoy as much as possible in do, those moments because it is always like oh, it's not gonna last. Like all oh, things are gonna crash, and you're gonna be like sure. But uh so when in love, like you're not gonna be like oh, but you know like probably in two years you're not gonna be in love anymore, and you're gonna she's gonna cheat on you, or you're gonna like have fights. Like well, I'm in love right now. <laughs> like I better enjoy it when it when it's when it's happening.
1: Huh? What a nice way of putting it. So you've got a lot of big shows coming up but you also have one project in the work that is different from the rest of them and that's we were recently commissioned by the nonprofit organization RxArt to paint a 207 foot hallway in a Los Angeles children's hospital where 16,000 kids walk down this hallway every year on their way to surgery. What is a project like that like for an artist? How do, how do you approach something like that? Uh, yeah, <laughs> to describe it as a fairly kind of heavy uh,
0: <laughs> context. <laughs> it's not the <laughs> hip gallery in Chelsea, but basically I'm going to work and do my best to fit this context at the moment. Uh, it's visually quite scary. It's obviously scary not because of the architecture. It's mainly because what it is, you know, like if it was a corridor to go to an amusement park, even if it was exactly the same one, it will be less scary. Like And children and parents and ter- caretaker that goes through that. I think if you can change even a tiny bit and even few people, that, that's a big thing. And I do, obviously I love arts very, very much and I, I believe, you know, 100% on its power and its effects on people because that's affecting me on a daily basis. So I believe that some images, some colors, some compositions, some themes can really like open up something in, in a moment. I mean, you need to be very like obviously kind of modest and humble because again, you can't say like, oh, because I did that, like everybody in this corridor is gonna be like, "Okay, surgery is gonna be fine." Of course not. Mm-hmm. And if you're a kid and you have to go to surgery, it's obviously not a great moment. It's not the place that you should, you're supposed to go to be at, the, at you know at, at at that moment. So hopefully, you that's the idea is to create an environment that could change even to get a tiny bit of that moment.
1: And hopefully, I'll do it. <laughs> so to end on a, on a slightly lighter note, <laughs> your name is Nicholas Party. And that's a name that people love to play with. It's, it's a fun name, especially for journalists who like to, you know, headlines, <laughs> have all kinds of wordplay. What is the best pun on your name that you've heard? And what is the most annoying <laughs> one that you keep on hearing?
0: Yeah, I mean, to be honest, I don't really, like, pay attention to this particular joke. Because obviously <laughs> I had it, like, many times. And uh, it's not that I don't think it's funny. It's just I don't really get really affected by it in, 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 in a negative or positive where I don't really kind of pay attention but uh, I mean I don't think it's that easy to make a very good one but anyway I, I obviously like, I think it's a very fun name and it's you know a party is a good thing
1: <laughs> well I have to say I enjoyed this party very much <laughs> so thank you for coming to this party uh, thank you for being on the Art Angle this week if you like what you heard you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts Spotify and SoundCloud The Art Angle is produced by Tim Schneider and Caroline Goldstein and edited by Nick Long. Thanks for listening, and see you next week.